Would you like predictable monthly income with annual returns up to 15% or more? Norada Capital Management offers you the opportunity to invest in promissory notes with fixed rates of return and monthly direct deposits. We provide investors with an effortless way to diversify beyond other investment options like stocks and bonds and even real estate. Our promissory notes have a high rate of return and are 100% passive. Interest is paid monthly, directly into your account, delivering truly effortless income. Many other passive investments offer rates of return in the 4-6% to range. Our promissory notes have delivered fixed rates of return in the double digits since conception. All notes are in good standing and Norada has a no-default history and reputation. And retirement accounts such as self-directed IRAs and Roth IRAs also qualify for this investment. So if you're looking for an effortless investment with predictable monthly income and double-digit returns, then visit our website at noradacapital.com. Learn more at noradacapital.com today. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. And today we have a very special episode because we're going to talk about something that impacts everybody, not just those listening to the show, but everybody in the country and actually around the world. So my guest today, really sharp guy, Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute. We're going to talk a little bit about the state of the economy and inflation. And these are things that impact you, whether you know it or not. And I'm sure you do, because uh, we have a very well-educated, smart audience at, on this show even though we are listened to in over 100 countries, most of our listeners are here in the United States, and this is going to hit close to home. So inflation has been you know, in the uh, headline news for a very, very long time, and it's an important subject. In fact, the timing of today's interview coincided with the latest release of the annual inflation rate, which came out this morning at a whopping 7.1%, which is what was expected, but it's such a crazy high number relative to what we've been seeing in years past, decades past, actually four decades to be more specific. And that number, that 7.1%, Keep in mind, that's the headline rate. That's what's talked about in the media and among various talking heads. But when you really look at the real rate of inflation, not the nominal rate of inflation, you know, by number, that real rate of inflation is actually higher. And so the annual inflation rate that was released this morning in the U.S. has accelerated to 7.1% over the last month of 2021. We're here in January. And that is a sharp fresh new high since June of 1982. It is in line with the market expectations. And you know, we're comparing that to a whopping 6.8% that came out in November. So it's still increasing. Now, energy was the biggest contributor to that gain. I'm sure that's not a surprise to many people. But inflation really accelerated across the board. Housing or shelter rose from 3.8% to 4.1%. Food uh, now I'm talking more specifically food at home, went from 6.4% year over year in November to 65 So a small increase, but still it's over a 6% increase year over year. Vehicles, both new and used, moved a whopping 11.8% for new vehicles and 37% for used cars and trucks. Think about that. Good luck finding a vehicle that is affordable. I mean, if you're 
sitting on a bunch of cars and you want to sell, now's a good time. Clothing went up almost 6%. Medical care services went up about 2.5%. And that's not talking about healthcare here. We're talking about medical care services. Inflation really spiked last year in 2021 for many reasons. I mean, we're talking about the pandemic-induced supply constraints, however real those might be. I mean, there's definitely supply constraints, but how much of it was pandemic-induced is another question because there was certainly increased demand. There was a lot of people buying, so demand certainly increased. There are soaring energy costs, labor shortages, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I think there's a lot of people who have just left the labor market and have chosen to stay unemployed or at home for whatever reason. But inflationary pressures like these are expected to last well throughout the year and certainly in the years to come, I don't think is short term. And we're going to talk about that in today's interview with Jeff Deist here because he has some uh, thoughts and opinion on that as well. It's anybody's guess, but just based on the uh, credit-based system that we work and live in and where we have been coming from and where we're headed certainly points in the direction of more inflationary pressure and increased inflation. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I do plan on making another one or two with potentially some other guests or maybe just myself about inflation and the impact it has. So let us go on to our interview with Jeff Deist, and uh, I hope you enjoy today's show. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeff Deist to the show. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute, where he serves as a writer, public speaker, and advocate for property, markets, and civil society. He previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul, which I find amazing, for whom he wrote hundreds of articles and speeches. Jeff is also or has been a tax attorney advising private equity clients on mergers and acquisitions. Very diverse individual, amazing person to listen to. I've been following Jeff for years. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Marco. Appreciate it. Well, it's great having you on. I love your content. And, and, you know, I think a great place to begin is really about the Mises Institute. You guys have tons of content, amazing content on there from blog articles that seem to pop up daily to great videos, even for young people to get them started and understanding economics in a very basic way. And I think it's something that is sorely needed, especially with the school systems that we have today. They're not providing the type of, in my opinion, financial and economic education and content that we really need to educate, especially our younger generations. So let's just start off with the Mises Institute. What is it and what role do you play there? Well, I hope it is an alternative school. As you mentioned, you know, the, the academic system, K through 12, and the universities really, I think in many ways are failing young people. They cost too much money. They don't provide a very uh, worthwhile or actionable education in many cases, not all, but in many cases. And so I hope that we are a place where people can come and consume uh, education for free as much or as little as they want. Some people might just want to read the occasional article or or follow us on Twitter or something like that. And some people might really want to dive in. I mean, we have years and years, decades worth of reading material in terms of free wow. online books, uh, videos, you name it, you can get a full education. Uh, but beyond the educational malpractice we're witnessing, I also think that the profession of economics is in a really tough spot. I don't think it's doing much good right now. In other words, I don't think it's serving mankind as a, as a science, it's not really helping us understand the world better or helping us to become wealthier or happier or healthier. I think mostly economics right now 
is sinecures for people who work at places like the Fed and for people who have jobs in academia. And increasingly, in the private sector, the big tech companies are hiring economists, particularly PhD economists, to do a lot of behavioral stuff, which is really about getting the chimp to click, you know, add another item to the basket or figure out browsing habits and that sort of thing. Uh, but in terms of helping us understand the world better, I think economics is falling down on the job. And I think we've fallen into this trap where we imagine that the, the role of economists is to sort of tinker with public policy and make us all want to demand more stuff. This is really the story of the 20th century in economics and now 21st, which is that governments and central banks should stimulate us. We need stimulus, mm -hmm. whether that's monetary or fiscal. And if we have enough stimulus, there'll be lots and lots of demand for stuff and we'll all buy more stuff. And that's how you have a healthy economy. But of course, that's not how you have a healthy economy. You have a healthy economy by producing more stuff, goods and services, and producing it cheaper and more efficiently over time, thanks to capital investment. And as economies get more efficient, all those things which used to be luxuries become available to people like us in the middle class. Things like having an automobile or a television or being able to fly on an airplane. These were once for the very rich in society. And the, the fact that we can all afford those things, or most of us can, is a result of a deflation and the U.S. economy becoming more efficient. And so we've lost our way in economics. And I hope that the Mises Institute stands apart from that, that stands as an antidote to that, that provides some clarity to just intelligent lay people, not just academic economists, but intelligent lay people who have an interest in all this. And if you're investing, you better indeed have an interest in all this. Yeah, absolutely. You made a lot of really good points. And, you know, the example I like to use often is the iPhone or the smartphone. Most of the world now carries a smartphone in their pocket, technology being so deflationary. And now we have this technology which has been so disruptive that has empowered so many people to be able to transact, to reach information and knowledge in an instant, to be able to transfer funds within seconds. It's just amazing how powerful technology is. But, you know, just to kind of close the loop there on the Mises Institute, you guys, you know, are really a leading organization for ideas that really center around liberty and free markets. And it's really all about the Austrian School of Economics, which when I discovered Austrian School of Economics, I was blown away because it really resonated with how I think about things and what I believe in, in terms of free markets and liberties and whatnot. There's probably a lot of, lot to unpack there, but I really would like to kind of focus a little bit down the road of economics. You mentioned that we need more stuff, which really is another way of saying that we need to produce. We need to be a productive economy. We can't just drop money in people's pockets, whether it's helicopter money or otherwise, to try and stimulate the economy. That does work. It's short term, but it's not a sustainable solution. So I guess really the first question I'd like to ask you here is, do you think we're living in a false economy? Define false however you want, but is this really a true healthy economy or based on fundamentals, are, are we living in a false economy? I think to an extent we are. And I think to an extent we have been really since, I would argue the late 1990s, the Alan Greenspan era. Uh, some of your listeners might remember the tech stock bubble mm -hmm. and burst during that period, 2000, 2001. We actually had a kind of a nasty little recession during that period. And Alan Greenspan uh, effectively told investors and markets, not in so many words, that he would do whatever it takes to not have another stock market crash like that, especially like the one in 1987. So that is referred to as a colloquialism called the Greenspan put. Right. 
<laughs> and so ever since then, I think we've looked at stock markets, equity markets, but also asset prices in housing, especially. Uh, we've looked at them in nominal terms, but we haven't been mm. thinking about them as much in real terms. And so as a result of that, I think central banks have worked awfully hard in the West to, to keep asset prices up. And one way to do that is to keep interest rates down. And so if we look back at interest rates in the United States for most of the 20th century, they averaged, well, between about five and 8% at the federal funds rate level, which is the overnight rate at which banks lend money to each other. They don't have to do that much anymore because the Fed has got them all swamped with cash from these asset buybacks, quantitative easing, I'm sure you, you're all familiar with. But yeah. an average of five to 8%, and then add a, a percentage point or two on top of that for a prime borrower, maybe add five or 10 points for a subprime borrower. And, and you have the history of the last 100 years of interest rates in this country. Now, interest rates also affect what Congress has to spend every year servicing the national debt. Yeah. So with $30 trillion out there in treasury debt, you can imagine that's a pretty big number. But because the average weighted interest on that debt is only be, covers between about one or 2%, depending on whether it's single year, five year, 10 year, whatever it might be, Congress has managed to keep that most recently at about $400 billion a year as a, an item in the federal budget. If interest rates were more like 5 to 8%, that would very quickly triple or quadruple. And so that would become the single biggest thing in the federal budget every year. So that's a pickle. When you've got this kind of debt, there's an awful lot of political pressure on the Fed to keep interest rates low. And of course, there are other reasons. I mean, they're terrified of having interest rates go up and you know, hurt the housing market or hurt the, uh, you know, the auto automobile market or whatever it might right. be. So I think when interest rates are suppressed like that, and central banks can't do that forever. At some point, the market does come along and assert itself. But when they're suppressed, lower than what they would be, in my opinion, in a free or natural market for borrowing and lending, boy, oh boy, that distorts the economy. It makes an awful lot of things make sense on paper. The M&A market where I worked for 20 years, I mean, an awful lot of those deals work when there's lots and lots of debt involved and not much equity involved, and that debt is really cheap. There's all kinds of businesses. Uh, the Austrian school refers to this as malinvestment mm -hmm. that makes sense when interest rates are low. So because money and credit has been cheap for so long, I think there are just it's almost unfathomable. It's you know it's very hard to describe all the distortions that might have caused throughout the economy. But yes, I, I, it makes me scared. It makes me worry for my kids because I do think that the prosperity we've enjoyed materially it has been borrowed to an extent. It would be like watching your neighbor go out and get five new credit cards, each of them with a ten thousand dollar limit. And all of a sudden, your neighbor has all these, you know, new, uh, new car, new fancy clothes, a new big screen TV, yeah. or whatever. And you'd look at your neighbor and say, "Wow, he's really doing well." Yeah, but it's borrowed. So clearly, we can't have a high inflationary environment forever because that's not healthy. And you know, it could be argued whether we'll ever see hyperinflation. It's my guess that we will never see hyperinflation, but we'll just gradually continue down that road of strong inflation. And I'm sure the Fed does not want to see deflation because that would be completely destructive to our economy. So do you think that we collectively have painted ourselves into a corner or a box that we can't get out of? We have to perpetually be in an inflationary environment now and forever based on this credit-based system? 
Well, I think we have, absolutely. I think Congress and the Fed working in what I consider a very unholy alliance is almost like a, a junkie and a drug dealer. Yeah. Uh, Congress consistently spends more than the federal government takes in in taxes. And the Fed consistently monetizes that, although many years earlier in the sense that they're buying old treasury debt from commercial banks, for example. So what this does is it creates in investors' minds not a guarantee, but this, you know, this thought, hey, there's always a market for treasury. There's always a backstop. The Fed will always be there. And that's pretty much been true. So yes, I think they back themselves into a corner in that they can't allow interest rates to rise rapidly because A, it would hurt tank the economy, and B, the, the aforementioned problem with federal debt and Congress. And the other thing is, I don't think that they really have an exit plan. We know that simply creating more money and more debt doesn't bring any new goods or services into the world in and of itself. You could give everybody in America a million dollars tomorrow and prices would just adjust and we'd all be the same because there wouldn't be any more goods or services as a result. But the problem is, is that we can get away with this as long as the dollar remains the world's reserve currency and as long as there is some appetite for U.S. Treasury debt. And with, for example, European sovereign debt, at not, not only negative real rates, but negative nominal rates of interest, then yeah, 1% on a treasury looks pretty good by comparison. So there's politics involved too. It's not just about the financial system and the banking system. There's also the fact that America is politically dominant and America is militarily dominant. And that uh, coming out of the Bretton Woods Agreement and coming out of World War II, we set in place some mechanisms which would ensure that the US dollar became and remained the world's reserve currency. So the whole world still needs dollars. Right. If you want to buy oil, if you want to engage in international trade, that's how uh, international uh, payments are settled every day across the world. So the world still needs dollars. We're still, in that sense, a safe haven and the least dirty shirt in the laundry. So I agree with you. I don't right. think there's going to be hyperinflation. I think that the US dollar will remain supreme for the foreseeable future, but it doesn't take hyperinflation. Just at you know, 5% a year, if you're not getting a 6% raise or 6% on your savings, let's say you're an older person, you're losing ground. Well, that's not only true for income, but that's true for virtually everything that has debt tied to it. If your assets are not appreciating, at least at the real rate of inflation, you're actually losing ground, right? So Absolutely. I guess back to my question of, uh, you know, whether we're living in a false economy, I guess if you put it within the context of are we living in a true free market economy, the answer would be no. We're living in an inflated economic system that is constantly requiring stimulus and juicing currency putting into the system in order to keep it alive. Is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, to me, that's a fair statement. I, look Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are taking a week. You have too many manual processes. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, 
because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs, that's your key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash real estate. That's netsuite.com slash real estate to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash real estate. Look, I'm very jaundiced. I think central banks are one of the great evils of our time. And I also think that what they do and the cultural and social ramifications, not just the economic ramifications, are maybe the biggest untold story of our time. Uh, I don't think people have any real sense of how distortive all of this is on our own behaviors. But, you know, that being said, I don't know how we undo it so easily. You know, going back to some kind of private payment system or a gold standard or something like that is not real easy to do when you've got, uh, you know, not just the whole economy addicted to dollars, but also especially elderly people who very much need entitlements in the form of Social Security and Medicare to get by. And those are basically fueled by deficit spending and ultimately by the Fed, again, as a backstop. So, you know, there's not just easy answers to all this, but I think uh, explaining to people what central banks really are and how money is supposed to work versus how it does is really important. I think it's it's one of the most important things that any of us can do as individuals or that the Mises Institute could attempt to do. And so when it comes to investing, for example, if you understand monetary policy, in addition to you know the taxes you're going to pay or the opportunity costs or the IRR whatever it might be whatever you're looking at you know if you understand that the only return that matters is not just the return net of taxes and fees but the ter- return net of taxes and fees and inflation right then i think maybe that gives you a leg up on some of your competition yeah it's so critical for us today to pay attention to what inflation is how high it really is, and how it impacts us in our daily lives. And this is especially true for people who are on fixed income or elderly people who are living off savings because their purchasing power is being eroded far faster than I think the mainstream media leads most people to believe, which kind of goes to the whole thing of, do we even believe the GDP numbers? I mean, is GDP you know, a, a lie uh, as a measure of the economy because they pass a $1.9 trillion bill And that's just dumped into the GDP numbers, and it makes it look like the economy's humming along. But when you go back to fundamentals, do we really have a healthy economy based on jobs and labor and whatever else? Do you have any comments about the GDP numbers and why they're not reliable? Well, I mean, I I very much think GDP is a useless number, and here's why. Mm. First of all, GDP is basically a retail figure. It represents only final end products and services and the dollar, the nominal dollar amount associated with them. So there's all, there are uh, stages of production, the manufacturing and wholesale level, which are in no way reflected. And a lot of those, by the way, take place in different states. And then the oftentimes blue state where the final product is, is or services sold gets the GDP credit, so to speak. The other problem with GDP is, of course, that it includes government spending. That's part of GDP. So the nation of Turkey, the Republic of Turkey, for example, after the 2008 crash, went out and borrowed 
borrowed, borrowed, but it didn't borrow in Turkish lira, which it could print to repay. It borrowed in dollar and euro. That's a disaster. And so the Turks built all these huge infrastructure projects, you know, an autobahn, huge airports. And so everyone was looking at Turkey as this economic miracle. Oh my gosh, they've got eight or 10% GDP growth. They're going to join the European <laughs> Union. Well, it was all borrowed. Okay. The other problem with GDP is that it nets out exports over imports. So I, I don't care about that. I care about consumer preferences. Right. If consumers prefer to buy their automobiles or their toothpaste or their shirts or whatever from China, you know, um, that's their demonstrated preference, regardless of what they say. So I don't believe in fetishizing exports over imports. And finally, there's no such thing as an aggregate well-being. I mean, look, uh, China and India have much higher GDP than Liechtenstein, but GDP per capita <laughs> is what matters. Right. I, no offense. I'd rather live in Liechtenstein. Yeah than India or China, because it's much wealthier on per capita. So the idea of aggregating well-being or aggregating the economic power of society, you know, it, it doesn't really hold water. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We ought to be looking at, at all the various stages of production. We ought to be forgetting about government spending, which is actually d takes money out of the legitimate private economy. It doesn't add to it. It doesn't add to output or productivity. It yeah. detracts from it. That ought to be a minus in the GDP column. And so I think it's very easy to juice GDP. I mean, like ha have a war, for example, produce a bunch of bombs and missiles and tanks and pay a bunch of soldiers and you'll radically increase GDP, but you won't actually be providing the goods and services that a marketplace right. wants and that make a society richer. So it's pretty clear that you do need consumption in an economy in order to move the economy forward and, and have a healthy economy. However... I think what you're saying is that you need production first. Production has to precede consumption because you can only juice consumption for so long. But if the production is not there, you're not going to have a sustainable economy. Is that a fair fair statement? Yes, <laughs> that is called Say's Law. The famous French economist named Jean-Baptiste Say came up with this a few hundred years ago. And that is that production creates its own demand. And what he meant by that mm. is that, you know, all of us hopefully produce things in our jobs and that job, or you know, may, maybe you're self-employed, maybe you invest, how, however you earn money, uh, that job produces an income for you. So it's your productive effort that gives you the ability to then go out and consume, right? That's how you get the money, unless I suppose inheritance mm. or something like that. So that's how we have money to consume. So the idea that all we have to do is stimulate demand, which is something that really comes out of uh, John Maynard Keynes, and his revolution in the 1930s, which is still very much with us in economics and politics. Oh yeah, very much. This Keynesian, Keynesian notions, that has become a mythology where that, you know, you stimulate the economy, you grow an economy by stimulating demand. But the problem is, is that we all have demand. All of us want goods and services naturally. The question is whether we can pay for it. And so those are two very separate questions. And, and so yes, absolutely production Greater productivity at lower cost, thanks to capital investment, which comes from profits. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't rocket science. That's how you build a healthier economy, not through a bunch of crazy new money and debt. Yeah, I'll say, sadly, every administration seems to continue at different speeds the Keynesian model. Now, you have to give John Maynard Keynes some credit for the model he's created, but I say sadly because I think a lot of the modern day administrations have taken that to an extreme where it's money printing 
on steroids. I don't know how else to say it. And this is why I asked you before, if we painted ourselves into a corner, because we've created so much emphasis on consumption and stimulus or you know quantitative easing, call it whatever you want, that there's no point of return. What's interesting is I saw a statistic just maybe three, four weeks ago, that when a country's GDP surpasses the 77% point, I forgot how they were denominating that. But when your GDP exceeds 77% of your country's debt, there is no point of return. You're basically on a path of no return. Have you heard this before or does that ring a bell? Yes, there's there's a lot of comparisons out there between GDP and debt. And it, back in the 90s and 2000s, people were talking about the Japanese economy a lot with that regard. Mm. So there are still countries out there that, who are worse off than us. In other words, their uh, debt to GDP is worse ratio than ours. But yes, I think it's absolutely troubling. We haven't seen anything like this since really World War II in America. Wow. Okay, so let's bring this back to interest rates. You were talking a little bit about it earlier, and then you mentioned a couple things before we started recording here today. But you know, everybody always thinks about the direction of interest rates. Is it going to go up this year? How is it going to affect me? How is it going to affect my lines of credit, mortgage rates, and whatnot? What is your prediction for interest rates short term and long term? Well, I think they're definitely going up. There's no question that I think the Fed is going to be unable to keep a lid on this. And so when they announce, uh, as Jerome Powell recently did, that they, you know, they might even consider 500 basis points, half a percent, what they're trying to do is get out in front of the story as a PR matter, because it's something they can't control anyway. So they want to make it look like it's their doing. So again, <laughs> I'm a skeptic. I'm very jaundiced when it comes to central banks. So maybe you should listen to somebody a little more objective <laughs> on that score. We'll, but, we'll listen to both sides of the yeah, equation. Yeah, listen to both sides. But but here's the thing. If we just think about interest rates conceptually, right? we make too much of this. We tend to think of interest rates as somehow these policy tools by these technocratic central bankers who turn these dials and fine tune the economy to figure out the right rate of interest. Well, that's nonsense. Interest rates are just prices. They're just exchange ratios like anything else. And they ought to reflect supply and demand, supply of and demand for loanable funds. So if lots of people are doing well in a society, they're making money. They're making profits above and beyond what they're spending in their business. They have extra money. So they want to put that into investment or savings with the bank or something. So that means that there's more loanable capital available. So as that increases, we would expect interest rates to fall because there's more, more uh, savings available. And as the economy got worse, we would expect people to have less, fewer profits and capital loans. So interest rates would go up. Same on the demand side. So the idea that interest rates should be set is exceedingly anti-free market. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and as you mentioned earlier in the show, that's why we cannot consider ourselves as really living in a market economy, because half of every equation, half of every transaction in America, we, you've got the good or service being sold on the one side. On the other side, you have the money being paid for it. So half of that equation, the money is, I think, losing quality every day. I mean, you know, people don't think too much. They don't examine the money and whether the money they're getting is any good, they just sort of bake that into the price. Whereas if you, let's say you want to buy a new car, you probably go out and do some research. Oh, you know, the new Accord has this and that, or how about the new Camry? You know, I, I mean, before you spend, I, I, what's, a, what's an Accord, $35,000, $40,000? Sure. Before you drop that kind of money, you know, you probably want to think about it a little bit, do a little research. But yet, how much research does Honda do into the dollar you're giving them? I guess they're, they're smart enough to figure out, hey, we got to bake in some you know, money here, some price for inflation. 
But it really is a, a sad state of affairs. I mean, we can understand interest conceptually, right? We all want stuff now. That's why you'd rather have your dream house at age 40 than age 90, right? Yeah. Because life is uncertain and you might die. Right. Heck, you might die at 39. You might get hit by a bus. God forbid. But nonetheless, we can understand the concept of time preference. All things given, we'd rather have stuff now rather than later. However, there's scarcity in this world. And to have a beautiful house or to have all these things you might want, you got to work hard and build up some savings or invest money. And, you know, it takes some time to build up to where you can get that. So that's why we're willing to pay interest to get something now purchase something today and make payments on it over time. That's why, because we prefer to have it now and enjoy it now rather than having to wait till we save up the, the entire uh, sum for it. And so we're willing to pay interest on top of the purchase price. On the flip side, somebody who has a bunch of money says, hey, I'm doing okay. I've got my house. I've got my car. I've got my life. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'd like to take some of this extra money I've got and put it into savings or investment vehicles. So they're making that money available to other people. They're putting it at risk. There's a risk of loss there. It could go to zero. That investment or that bank could go kaput. And they're also not using that money today to go out and buy a third car or a bigger house or a fancier vacation, whatever they might do. Instead, they're choosing not to spend that money and they're putting it in play at risk in exchange for getting paid some interest for it. So, you know, this is all you need to know to understand interest rates is time preference. Some people would rather buy stuff now and pay interest. Some people would rather not buy stuff now and get mm. paid interest. Time is the element in all that. But instead, we've worked ourselves up in this tizzy where we have to listen to these central bankers like they're uh, sitting on a mountaintop with Moses coming down with some tablet. And, and it's just absurd. The whole circus just I find nauseating. Yeah. I love everything you said. The whole concept of having something now from a consumption perspective can actually be applied to an investment perspective because, you know, the, you know there's a concept for saying that it's better to have a dollar today than pay that same dollar a year or 10 years from now because of inflation. I mean, that dollar will be worth less as more time goes on. So it's the time value of money. But, you know, everything you just said is spot on and very interesting. And it's the whole reason why we actually don't have true free market economy, because if we did, interest rates would adjust themselves based on supply and demand, the demand for that capital to be borrowed at a particular rate. But unfortunately for us, the Fed has a lever that they can play with, and they do, and that is called interest rates. And so they set the rates up and down in an effort to try and cool or heat up the economy. And unfortunately, we just have to follow suit and follow along with whatever they decide to do. And you can actually see the markets react, like even without the rate adjustment, all they have to do is just hint towards it or mention it and the markets react. In fact, they did this morning, the inflation numbers that were just announced. And we were talking about this for a few seconds before. So, you know, kind of leads me to a question as we transition to inflation, and this is kind of where I want to finish the show up with, is um, our economy. Is our economy really being driven by the Fed or is it being driven by the economy itself? Like, what is the biggest driver of inflation today? Well, there's, it's complex. There's a lot going on. And I mean, you know, seven, eight billion people get up every day around the world in an interconnected dynamic market. And so I think the COVID lockdowns, clearly had a lot to do with it because mm. when you send people home and shut down uh, vast swaths of the economy and they're not producing whatever good or service they normally produce for many weeks or months or even years, yes, obviously that is going to reduce supply 
And if demand stays the same or higher, you'd expect prices to rise for that stuff. And of course, we've seen that, especially with automobiles. Uh, these chips that a lot of the newer cars require are very much backed up. A lot of them are sourced solely from Taiwan. So there's kind of a bottleneck there. And so uh, some of this is is transitory. In other words, it's just a, a inflation, a, a kind of a one-time thing. And it affects certain pr- goods or services more than others like automobiles. But the other side of this is, of course, all the monetary and fiscal stimulus that Western countries and Western central banks have engaged since COVID. And so uh, something like 25% of all U.S. dollars ever created in the history of the United States have been created in the last year and a half, last well, almost two years now. So obviously, when you've got lots more money and credit in circulation, mm-hmm. uh, chasing fewer goods because of COVID lockdowns, that's a bit of a perfect storm. So uh, it doesn't, again, it, this isn't rocket science. It's just the whole thing is obscured. When you read the financial media, it's almost like we're trying to uh, suss out animal spirits or something. No, it's, it's pretty simple. It's supply and demand. But you have to look at inflation, I think, three different ways. There's a, a financial person on Twitter. She's very active there. Her name is Lynn Alden. Mm -hmm. She's great. A-L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N, whom I really enjoy. She has a a lot of free content. I think she has some paywalled content as well. But she wrote a fantastic article on the three kinds of inflation. One of them was uh, consumer price inflation. That's what most of us think of as rising prices at the grocery or whatever it might be. Asset price inflation, which is more what we think of in terms of equity markets, especially in the last, since that Greenspan era we mentioned. And uh, also housing, uh, real estate, and, and, and you know, there's overheated markets like San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles and New York for most of the past 20 or 30 years. And then finally, monetary inflation, which is where the actual money supply is being manipulated, increased, normally increased, but sometimes reduced by the machinations of central banks and treasuries of countries. So those three things are very different. They're very interconnected. It's a little more complicated than we like to think. And sometimes those three things operate somewhat independently of one another. In other words, since the crash of 08, we saw a lot of uh, asset price inflation, again, in certain housing markets and in the stock markets. But we didn't see a lot of consumer price inflation with respect to, let's say, food. So to understand why prices don't just rise uniformly across all goods and services, I'll recommend her article to you. But all three of them are happening at the same time. And I will say this, I hate to make predictions, but I don't think there's any way that the 2020s, the powers that be will be able to keep price inflation mostly suppressed they, the way they were able to in the 2010s following the you know the 08 crash. I think consumer price inflation is here to stay. I think it's going to run pretty hot for a while, and I don't think it's transitory. Yeah, consumer price inflation has been a big problem here for a few years or maybe a long time, depends on how you measure that. The whole thing about price inflation with food, I think what we are seeing more of there is shrinkflation where, you know, boxes and packaging are actually giving you less of the same stuff, even though you're paying the same amount and the box size is the same, but you're actually getting less product. And this has been going on for decades. It's nothing new. But, you know, where we're seeing the highest rates of inflation is in the healthcare sector, education, and insurance, among other places. And this is just crippling to so many people. And I don't think there's any sign that that's going to slow down anytime soon. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. And note that those three industries are all closely related to government yeah. and enormously regulated by government. There, those are hardly market institutions. Take health insurance, for example. 
the Obamacare bill says you have to have it. <laughs> well, you know, a, a service you're required to have is not a free market service, in my opinion. Right. And of course, education is dominated by government and government schools. And so is healthcare. Healthcare is dominated by Medicare and uh, PPOs and HMOs, which have a very incestuous relationship with government. So if you do look at the cost per pupil in private schools, of course, you'll find that it's far less. And generally, the educational outcomes are, are better than public schools. If you look at the cash-based medical services, if you look at offshore medical tourism, if you know people will go to Mexico for dental and vision care, if you look at plastic surgery and Botox, th- that sort of thing, which is generally cash, those prices have been coming down and down while the quality has been going up. If you look at LASIK eye surgery, you know, way back in the 70s and 80s, they used to do that with a scalpel rather than a laser. And it cost them like $10,000. Now they do it with a laser. It costs maybe $2,000 in, in 2020, $2. So, um, you know, we, we understand that wherever government gets heavily involved, banking, insurance, medicine, education, prices go up and quality goes down. Wherever the market is allowed to operate most freely, quality goes up and prices yep. go down. It's, it's a pretty simple lesson. Yeah, I like your example of LASIK because that's a great example of where technology can not only be disruptive, but deflationary. And it's just to the consumer's benefit, where it's just driving prices down and it's making it more productive and efficient for everybody throughout that whole supply chain. So that's a great example. Having said all that, do you think this can be contained? We talked about this briefly before. I mean, we've got $30 trillion of U.S. Treasury debt at sub 2% interest rates. You know, inflation is here. I believe it's here to stay for a very long time. Is there anything we can do? I mean, can we get out of this? Is it even a possibility to get out of this? I think so, because America is still relative to the most of the world, both in terms of personal or individual freedom and taxes and regulations, but also in terms of capital, uh, attracting capital. Again, America is in many ways the least dirty shirt in the laundry. Other central banks and other governments and other countries have been, especially since COVID, uh, working overtime to make America look good, frankly. And so if we sort of step back a little bit, and I'm, I'm as guilty myself of this as anyone of, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, all this doom and gloom. But if you step back a little bit and take a look at the United States, we still have a vast continent in, here in North America with oil and natural gas wildly beyond what we thought we had, even in 2013, when they discovered the Bakken shale uh, up in yep. Montana and up there, the Obama administration said, "Us, I think we have 100 years more oil than we thought. We have a huge amounts of natural timber in forestry in North America. We have vast amounts of arable farmland in this country. We have more farmland than we need to feed ourselves so we can be an exporter of uh, agricultural products. We still have it, you know, a Despite the problems with our schools, we have a fairly educated workforce and our universities are still sought after by international students, at least, you know, the Ivy League, Stanford's of the world. And more importantly, I think, you know, and I, I fear we're losing this because this is the most important element beyond any natural resource. The most important element is that sort of optimistic American mindset that, you know, hey, things are going to be okay. This idea where if you're uh, standing in line at the grocery and there's two or three lanes open and they're backing up that someone comes and opens another lane that says, oh, come over here because people start to grumble a little bit. Well, in a lot of the countries, they would just accept that there'd be a more of a fatalistic outlook. And America's never had a fatalistic outlook. And, and I hope that the, the Zoomers 
you know, the 20 somethings and under today are not getting that from COVID and everything else that's going on with, uh, you know, it's hard for them to buy houses. It's hard for them to pay for college. It's hard for them to get married, failure to launch all this stuff, which I don't blame them. I mean, those, these are real economic concerns. So if we lose that sort of American sense of optimism, then we're in big trouble. But there's no reason on paper that we couldn't easily walk away from the rest of the world. I mean, we could deal with a $30 trillion debt by selling federal land. I mean, that's the obvious solution to that. There's vast portions of the West, which are owned idiotically owned by Uncle Sam. And there's no reason we couldn't contain our dollar. There's no reason on paper. It's more about our will to do so. You know, are we going to let the political class continue to snow us with a fake economy or are we going to you know, demand that we have a, a, an actual economy built on fundamentals? I think that's up to us because we tend to think of politics as intractable, but they, they only do what they can get away with at the right. end of the day. So yeah, I think yep. I don't want to expatriate. I'm not sure where I would go on earth that would have any better prospects than the United States. And even five or 10 years ago, I might've been more interested in a second passport. But today, I don't think that's the case. I think COVID proved it. I mean, my God, look at Canada and Australia. Who would have thought that they would become what they have in just the past two years? So no place I'd rather be right now. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, you just for a brief moment, Ronald Reagan's quote just flashed in my mind saying that the United States is kind of the last free forgot how he said it, state in the world where you can have rights and freedoms, something to that effect. And you could lose it within one generation. <laughs> you can. Uh, so there's a lot of truth to that. So clearly we need to be concerned about inflation. So let's kind of wind this down with a couple of questions just from an investment perspective. When we see inflationary environments like this, especially when we're above the historic average or norm, where are you seeing investors move towards? Where do they migrate to in higher inflationary times? Well, we've clearly seen this in the equity markets because people have to chase yep. yields. Uh, my great grandmother, I remember her, she lived until I was five or six. You know, she was able to literally just save cash money, cash in, in the household in physical form whenever they had a little extra in cigar boxes or cookie jars or whatever. You know, she was able to save cash money and have that be a wise thing to do. Whereas today, I hate to say it, but savings is for chumps. Right? If you're getting 1% or less and inflation 7, <laughs> you know you have to go out there and try to figure out how to mitigate that. And the last five or 10 years, people have tried to mitigate it by buying FANG stocks, basically, buying Bitcoin, yep. basically, in some cases, real estate. And an awful lot of people, especially older people, who once you stop working, ought to be shifting to very safe investments to just have their money last them are forced into stocks and you know other things just to again to chase yield. So the fact that interest rates are so low has had a hugely distortive effect on the equity markets because it's pushed a lot of money into them because who wants to sit there and and you know with 500 grand in your Vanguard account and make 1%. I mean that's that's right. obviously a crazy thing to do in cash. So I think that's a, been a big distortion. I think you know what the scary thing about real estate now is of course this rent moratorium that we recently experienced. I mean, once that precedent is set, and by the CDC of all agencies, not the Fair Housing Authority or something right. like that, I mean, <laughs> by the CDC of all agencies, I mean, what does that mean next time there's an economic crash like 08, or next time there's a terrorist incident like 9-11, or next time there's a new virus? You know, that's got to be pretty sobering for landlords. 
And so what we've seen is a lot of consolidation where big private equity players and others are buying up whole swaths of real estate and becoming landlords because the economies of scale work in their favor. Yeah. So I think people need to have stuff rather than dollars. I mean, there's no other rational play. And what that stuff is, if you know, if I knew with any degree of certainty, I'd be out buying it. I'd be on my E-Trade account or whatever. But you know, you can understand that a lot of speculative money probably went into Bitcoin. A lot of speculative money probably went into real estate, especially with the great migration we've seen thanks to COVID and, and really hot markets like Idaho and Phoenix and Florida and Texas. So, yeah. you know, it's too bad, but cash is not king right now. And if we ever find ourselves in a deflationary type spiral or a collapse, like the Great Depression in the late 1920s, early 1930s, then cash is going to be king once again. But for now, it certainly isn't. Yeah. I like to say that cash is trash. Robert Kiyosaki has been saying that for a long time as well. But the problem is, is that, you know, the final nail in the coffin just seems to have been in 1971 when we completely separated ourselves from gold as a tether to the U.S. dollar. I mean, then it was just a Forex free floating currency and it all, you know, it was all relative to the value of other currencies in the world. And so, you know, that really is when the currency was not money anymore. It was just fiat and it was just worth whatever it was worth and it could easily be printed and inflated away. But in my opinion, I think the four places that people can go for not just an inflation hedge, but to beat the real rate of inflation that we're seeing today, I've always said is businesses, productive growing businesses that are able to scale and grow and exceed the real rate of inflation, which is very doable. We see it all over the place and that's very, very true in the e-commerce space. Real estate, equities, which has been, but scary for many people, and crypto like Bitcoin, which is even more scary and far less understood by the majority of the population. One of the reasons I love real estate so much is because we can attach 30-year fixed rate mortgage debt to it, which by definition, it won't change, but inflation will continually erode the value of that debt year after year after year. So my $500 mortgage payment today is going to be more palatable next year, certainly much more palatable 10 years from now, and it's going to be a Starbucks coffee in 30 years from now. So that's what I love about real estate is sticks, bricks, concrete, and copper, which are all tied to inflation in terms of its price adjustment. But on top of those commodities that makes up the house, you know, the land is deflationary. It's limited in supply. And then you can attach debt to it, which is eroded by inflation. It's a beautiful investment. You know, I argue that it's the uh, best investment class, you know, out there that you can park your investment capital into. So I don't know if you have any comments about that, but I'm going to leave you with one last question. And that is this, you know, speaking of real estate and housing, what do you think all of this means, the inflation and, you know, the direction of our economy, what does that mean for housing in the U.S. for, let's say, the next few years or decade? Yeah, housing is very difficult to understand. And I don't think you can look at it nationally. I think it's absolutely it's an exceedingly local investment or an exceedingly local market. I mean, I live in a, the college town of Auburn, Alabama, which is about 75 or 80,000 people. So very, very unique niche place, growing, booming, lots of new condos, et cetera. So I might have a sense for my local real estate market and understand it and be able to, to invest rationally or something like that. But boy, you know, when I'm looking at REITs or something 
uh, shopping malls or something that's national. I don't know that I have the time or the inclination to understand that investment. I would be inclined to uh, do individual properties or something like that rather than trying to get into a fund or I agree, you know, something like that. But you know, it's tough. But if the Fed or the powers that be want to give you two and a half percent fixed money for thirty years, that's awfully hard to say no. Yeah, my question is, how much of it can I get? <laughs> Right. You know, exactly. It's on sale. Stock up on it. Jeff, it's been an honor having you on the show. Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? And then we'll just have you share, you know, what you can about finding you on social media and the Mises Institute. No, I appreciate you having me, Marco. And I hope that people can uh, go to Mises.org and uh, find something that interests them. Yeah, it's a treasure trove of content. It, there's so much good stuff there. And you've got, you know, links to all kinds of books that you guys have based you know, your entire organization on, correct me if I'm wrong, you've got some books on there as well. Yeah, we've got uh, hundreds. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so, you know, be careful. Ho hopefully you have a long weekend. If you ever, uh, if you're right. interested in econ and you ever find yourself on Mises.org, you might, you might end up at 3 a.m. down a rabbit hole. So Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. And uh, where can they find you? Twitter, where are your handles? Yeah, Twitter's probably the best place. Just one word, at Jeff Deist. D-E-I-S-T, generally keep up with everything I'm doing. Um, I do a weekly radio show, do a weekly podcast, occasional article as well. So uh, generally all that stuff is you can find via Twitter. Cool. Well, we'll put those links in the show notes as well as in the transcription on the website so people will be uh, quick to find it. But thank you for coming on the show. It's been a wonderful interview. All right. Thank you, Marco. Well, that was all really powerful stuff. And I guess I can't overemphasize how important it is to understand inflation and the impact it has on your daily life, on what you buy and spend money on, and particularly your investments, you know, in terms of assets, asset price appreciation, cost of goods and services. It really impacts you in every part of your life. And the only way to protect yourself and defend against it or to get it and beat it is to actually invest in assets that outpace the rate of inflation that will at least compete with, or worst case scenario, defer or minimize the impact of that inflation to lessen the damage or lessen the harm in terms of your purchasing power of your equity and capital. Because think about it, anything denominated in dollars is going to be affected by inflation. So it's important that you educate yourself and like I said, I'm thinking of having a couple of more episodes here over the course of upcoming weeks and months about inflation so we can help educate you further on inflation, what it is and how it's impacting you. So anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, download our free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. If you uh, are looking to invest in real estate as one of those asset classes I was talking about earlier, just schedule a free strategy session with my team here of investment counselors, and they can certainly talk to you about real estate as an investment class and how to get started or how to grow your existing portfolio. Love answering questions about real estate, so just click Ask Marco at the top of the Passive Real Estate Investing website and submit your question. I'll do my best to get to all of them. And if you're listening to this for the first time or you have been listening for a while and you haven't subscribed, just click that button to subscribe. It only takes a couple of seconds. That is it for today. Thank you for listening and we will see you all on our next episode.
Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.